and he alone is our hope. We ask now as we come to your word, the place where you have revealed Christ to us, we ask that you would show us our sin and show us more and more of Christ. It's in his name we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. On May 22nd, in his daily podcast called The Briefing, Dr. Al Mohler discussed a book recently written by psychologist Philip Zimbardo, who is Professor Emeritus at Stanford University, and the book's title is Man Disconnected, How Technology Has Sabotaged What It Means to Be Male. In his book, Zimbardo is warning of the end of masculinity and the fact that boys and young men now face a crisis of pornography and video game use. And one significant factor he addresses is the role of the father. He asks the basic question, why do boys need dads? And although his answer comes from a secular worldview, it is embedded with a great deal of wisdom. He says that fathers offer children a different kind of love than mothers. And in his view, without the father's influence, especially on boys, there is a very important element that's missing in their expectation. He makes very clear that fathers have a set of expectations for boys that mothers simply do not have. And, he says, if you take that set of expectations out of the daily experience of boys in the household, then you face a crisis of masculinity and, as Moeller states, by any measure, we're already looking at the effects of this on both sides of the Atlantic. Stuart Jeffries, who's reporting on Zimbardo's new book, which was first published in Great Britain, says this, In the UK today, a young person is more likely to have a television in their bedroom than a father in their house by the end of their childhood. And even if fathers are around, their sons don't engage with them much. Boys spend 44 hours in front of a TV, smartphone, or computer screen for every half hour in conversation with their fathers. Zimbardo concludes that the lack of motivation from a father, along with lots of other factors, is causing boys to disappear into the bedrooms where, he argues, they risk become addicted to porn, video games, and Ritalin. Among many other things, this somewhat discouraging report highlights the crucial role of good and proper motivation. <laughs> the right motivation makes a huge difference for all of us. And just as boys must have the right motivation necessary to grow into a man, we as Christians must have the right motivation necessary to engage in fruitful ministry. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I'm going to assume that you want to serve God. 
you want to serve your community, to be salt and light and to share the gospel in your neighborhood, at your job with unsaved friends and relatives. And you want to serve in your church, whether it's working in the nursery or children's church, teaching a class, showing up for workday, whether it's singing in the choir, playing an instrument, serving on a hospitality team, lawn mowing team, or serving as an usher or a greeter, cooking a meal, helping with BBS this summer, whether it's simply introducing yourself to a visitor or making an effort to get to know a new member, whatever it is, if you're a Christian, you desire to serve the Lord and to serve your church. But why? Why? What's your motivation? It's important that we ask this question because all of us are in constant danger of ministering with wrong motivations. They're everywhere. There's great danger here. Wrong motivations lurk at every corner like serving out of duty or guilt. I don't really want to, but I, I can't come up with a good reason to say no, and I know I should do it, so okay, I'll do it. There's a danger of serving out of the motive of the fear of man. You know, they're really going to think bad of me if I don't do it? Or related to that, the praise of man. You know, if I do that, she's going to think I am really awesome. So, I, yeah, sure, I'll do it. We could serve out of the motive of pride. You know, there really isn't anyone else that knows how to do this well. And so, you know, just for the good of everybody, it's really going to be important that I go ahead and do this. It's just going to be best. I, I need to do this, so I'll, I'll do it. Well, I'm sure that all of us at times have served with sinful motives. But none of these motives, none of these sinful motives are powerful enough to sustain faithful ministry. And none of them honor the Lord, and none of them reflect the glory of the Lord to other people. I invite you this morning to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As I've had the opportunity to preach here and there over the last year, this is the book I'm working through, and I, I love it. It's been a joy for me to study and think through this letter. And this morning we're going to look at five verses, verses 11 through 15, and I invite you to follow along as I read, starting at verse 10 through verse 15. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul gives us here two motives. Did you catch them? Before we look at them, before we consider these motives, and the motives he gives us here are the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. These are motives that we must have, and and we're going to consider them here in a moment. But before we do, let's step back into Paul's world so that we can understand the context from which he shares these motives. And the background we need to draw from is primarily in verses 11 through 13. First off, Paul uses the pronoun we. He talks about we and us. And just a reminder that in that, he is representing the apostolic office. He is speaking of himself, Paul, and the other apostles. None of us here is an apostle. In our specific life circumstances today, are very, very different than Paul's. But as we have embraced the apostles' teaching through faith, we've identified with him. So what Paul says here is true for all followers of Christ. Verses 11 through 13 speak to the main problem behind Paul's writing this letter. And and if you can remember, I've talked about this in past weeks as we've been in this book, Many in the Corinthian church had become enamored with really charismatic and impressive teachers who had come into their church. The problem was that these guys were preaching a different message, a different gospel than the true gospel Paul had preached. Not, like, not unlike our culture, in Corinth, the people were captivated by style. They, they absolutely loved a good show. And these false teachers had mastered the art of looking good on the outside. They took pride in their rhetorical prowess, their letters of recommendation from other churches, the payments they received, their ethnic and spiritual pedigree, their ecstatic spiritual experiences. All of these things were external, things that were seen. And Paul maintains that his opponents focus on such externals masked the true nature of their motives. Whereas Paul's actions revealed the genuine, true nature of his heart. And as he's done from the very beginning of this letter, Paul continues here to defend himself in order that the Corinthians might have the opportunity that they need to refute those still within the church who were calling his ministry into question. The issue here was not a personality contest. It kind of looks like that as he's talking about these other guys. That wasn't the issue. It was a struggle for the lives of those in the church who appeared to be Christians outwardly, but whose hearts were far from the Lord. You see, this, this really was not finally about Paul. Because Paul knew that the Corinthians' rejection of him was far more significantly a rejection of the gospel. I'm not sure we can know precisely 
what Paul means in verse 13. There's lots of views, just a couple of them that, that very well may be the case. Um, the, if, we're besides ourselves, if we're beside ourselves, it, it may likely refer to the fact that there were people who thought Paul was crazy due to his zeal for ministry. And, and, and what Paul's saying then is, if I'm a bit crazy, it's for God. But, but for you, I'm, I'm not crazy. It's possibly what he means. It's also possible that he has in mind his own exercise of tongues, which in 1 Corinthians 14, he describes as being prayer and praise to God. So, so in this case, the, the gist would be the, the ecstatic spiritual experiences that I have in private are for God, but I'm sober and in my right mind in my public ministry with you, Corinthians. So, whatever that means, we can't be totally sure, but just to summarize what Paul's saying in verses 11 through 13, perhaps the gist of what he's trying to communicate would be something like this. Corinthians, I know that some of you have a problem with my ministry. You don't think I'm reliable, qualified, capable, or even fully sane. But God knows what I'm like. And in your heart of hearts, you know what I'm like too. I'm not trying to brag about myself, but I feel like I need to say something in my defense lest you listen to the false teachers who talk a good game and look impressive but are not sincere and not trustworthy. All of this boasting is for your sake, so you will listen to me and not ignore the message that I proclaim. And as Paul defends himself, he shares two motives for his ministry. And these are both motives that we must have in our ministry. First, our ministry must be motivated by the fear of the Lord. By the fear of the Lord. We see this very clearly in verse 10. In verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And, and the therefore points us to what comes before. And we see in verse 10, Paul's talking about everyone appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And in light of that, we're motivated by the fear of the Lord. The, the Old Testament meaning of the phrase fearing the Lord has the idea of reverence and awe. And, and that's certainly part of it here too, but, but in light of verse 10, it seems to also include here a genuine fear of standing before Jesus' judge and receiving his verdict. In light of this, I think the King James translates this very well, knowing the terror of of the Lord. Paul is convinced that everyone will give an account before Christ and receive his verdict. And so to know that Christ is the judge of all is to fear Christ above all. Paul knows that Christ will judge all people, and so he is motivated by genuine fear of the consequences. As the writer of the Hebrews says, it is a terrifying, it's a dreadful, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
Do you really believe you will face the judge? On that day, how you serve God will provide objective evidence of whether or not your faith was genuine. This judgment seat of Christ here, I'm convinced, it is more than simply an award ceremony for Christians. This judgment is a matter of eternal life and death. So the reality that you will face the judgment seat of Christ has to motivate your ministry. And we see here, this fear of the Lord led Paul to persuade others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we trace his ministry through the book of Acts, there are lots of specific examples of how Paul did this very thing, seeking to persuade others of the gospel of Christ. This is what he gave his life for. This is why Paul suffered so much and why some people thought he was crazy. And so there's particular application here regarding our evangelism. It's important for us to consider whether or not we really believe that the people we come in contact with will face the judge. Do you believe that? Do people get the sense that you really believe a judgment is coming? If we do, then although we don't evangelize exactly the same way with every person, we will in some way and at some point in time seek to persuade, to urge, and implore them to be reconciled to God. For me, I, I think this is probably the most difficult part of evangelism. Certainly, it's the most unpopular. And because of that, it's really easy to leave this out. But we must not. We must not do that. Of course, there is a danger in appealing to people in unhelpful or even hurtful ways. But it is not manipulative or insensitive to urgently warn them in a gracious and loving way that they will be judged by Christ. It is simply the truth. And none of us has an unlimited amount of time in which to decide whether or not to follow Jesus Christ. In our appeal, we've got to remember, and this is a glorious truth for me, it's so encouraging. In our appeal, our efforts to persuade will never be decisive in causing them to believe. It, it, it doesn't rest on us. The most persuasive and convincing arguments, the best human appeal in the universe, could never be enough to convince one of their need for Christ and cause them to turn to Christ. Only the power of God working through the Spirit of God can make that happen. And so convinced that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, convinced that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we do our best to persuade. 
and urge people to believe in the gospel. But we trust God to convince and grant the gift of repentance and faith. So our first motivation then is the fear of the Lord. That that, that must motivate our ministry as it did Paul. Second, our ministry must be motivated by the love of Christ. By the love of Christ. Jesus is not only our judge, but he's our Savior. And so in verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. The, the, the love of Christ here, it just bare in its pure form is a bit generic. And grammatically, it could refer to both Christ's love for us as well as our love for Christ. And there's certainly always, I think, a sense in which both of those meanings are in play. But, but here in this verse, I think particularly, Paul has in mind Christ's love for us. The love of Christ is the controlling factor in his life. It's taken him into custody. I love how the New English Bible translates this. It says, Christ's love leaves us no choice. Why? Why is it that Paul's controlled like this by the love of Christ? He goes on and explains in verse 14, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died. It's important that we just note quickly the all here, what Paul's referencing here, is not referring to every single human being. The context makes it clear that Paul is talking about the Corinthian Christians, those who have died with Christ through faith in his death for sin and resurrection. So the all here is limited to the Corinthian Christians. He's just talking here about Christians. I think we very well might have expected Paul to write, one died, therefore all were saved from death. That, that would naturally follow, right? But he says that since Jesus died for all who trust in him, then all who trust in him have died with him. Machen offers a helpful explanation of this. He says, Christ died for all, therefore all died, is so because Christ was the representative of all who trust in him when he died. The death he died on the cross was in itself the death of all who trust in him. Since Christ was the representative of all who trust in him, Therefore, all who trust in him may have been said to have died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem when Christ died. So the death that we died is a death to self so that we can have life with Christ. As Paul summarized in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. As Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So everyone who trusts in Christ's death dies with Christ to themselves. And this has a very specific result. This has a direct effect on how one lives. Notice there in verse 15. He died for all. Why? What's the effect that this has? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The result of dying to yourself is that you no longer live for yourself. Rather, you live for Christ. Contrary to what some may think, God's love is not a license to do whatever you want or live with indifference to doctrine or morality. If the love of Christ makes you careless about righteousness and makes you want to live for pleasure in your own way, you do not know the love of Christ. We can't truly live for something that's died. And so the one who has died with Christ now lives for Christ rather than himself. One commentator said, egocentricity has given way to Christocentricity. Or another, Christ's self-sacrificing love restrains Paul from self-seeking. So let's just think briefly about what it means to live for Christ. What does it mean to live for Christ? And, And here's just a few examples. To live for Christ means that you say, Lord, I don't need to live for the acceptance of others because you've accepted me in Christ. Lord, how can you use me to share the gospel with my neighbors, co-workers, and friends? And what role can I play in the spread of the gospel to the nations? To live for Christ means that you say, Lord, I just don't need all this money you've given me. So rather than spend it on myself, I gladly give it back to you for the growth of your church and the spread of your kingdom. It means you say, Lord, my desire for sex is not ultimate because I desire you more. To live for Christ means that you say, Lord, it's, it's not about what I want for marriage, for family, or career. Because I believe that you will give me everything that I really need. Not my will, but your will be done. To live for Christ also means that we will live for others. It's all through this chapter, particularly 16 through the end of the chapter, which we're not going to look at this morning, but Christ considered the needs of others for reconciliation, more important than his own glory and position with the Father. He expressed his own sovereignty and love 
by giving himself to people. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ died for all in order to save them. And so for the same reasons, and compelled by Christ's love, Paul considers the needs of others more important than his own. And he gave his life to the Corinthians and people all over Asia in his efforts to spread the gospel. When James Calvert left England in 1838 as a missionary to the cannibals of Fiji, the ship captain tried to turn him back. And he said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. To that, Calvert replied, we died before we came here. He was no longer living for himself, but for Christ. And therefore, he was motivated to give his life to share the love of Christ with cannibals, even at the risk of being eaten by them. I think we see here the essential criterion for discerning who truly belongs to Christ and who does not. You see, the point is not that Christ really died for all. Therefore, all who trust in him potentially die to self or potentially live for Christ. That's not the case at all. In the words of Haifman, Paul assumes that the consequences of Christ's death are personal, powerful, and effective, not general, possible, and contingent. So, so those who truly belong to Christ do not live for themselves. In societies like ours, given to self-promotion, self-fulfillment, and self-indulgence, Christians will stand out as distinctively different. They live for Christ. And they give up their own rights for the good of others. So the love of Christ controls Paul. It, it motivates Paul. Because he died to himself with Christ. And therefore he lives with Christ. He lives for Christ and not for himself. Living for ourselves is very natural, isn't it? In fact, it's actually the default for every single person. From the moment we were born, the Apostle Paul writes, we, we, we all seek our own interests, not the interests of Christ. Yeah, this is super obvious with kids, isn't it? I mean, it's really clear that they're all about their own interests. But it doesn't go away, right? I mean, it is still true of all adults. We're just a lot better at disguising our selfishness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you believe the message we hear all the time from our world 
that true happiness can only be found when you live for yourself. Do you ever hear that message? Yeah, it's everywhere, isn't it? Constantly we're told, be happy, you want to be happy, then you live for yourself. That's the message we hear. Do you believe that? Have, have you bought that line? I want to make sure you know this morning that that message is a lie. It is a total, complete, absolute lie. Rather than leading to happiness, living for yourself will only make you miserable. In an article entitled, The Inevitable Misery of Living for Yourself, Colin Smith and Kristen Weatherell effectively illustrate why this is the case. And they explain that when you live for yourself, you're making yourself both the boss and the servant. So, so you are the one who is served, and you're the one who does the serving. So the demands you set are the demands you must meet, and you're always in conflict, and you will be in the strange point of beating yourself up because you're unhappy. See if any of these examples sound familiar. The displeased beauty. You look in the mirror, and self the boss is not happy because she wants to have a more pleasing image. Self the boss is perpetually displeased no matter how many hours she spends at the gym, putting on makeup, or dressing to please the world's taste. So, she beats up on self the servant for not being pretty enough. Self the servant had better step up and cultivate beauty or else she will be lost forever to a world that tramples over unattractive people. The disappointed retiree. You look at your life and self the boss says he should have accomplished more. Self the boss accuses him of wasting time, gifts, and money trying to become someone he never became. So, self the servant gets beaten up for not measuring up and resolves that since his life was no contribution to anyone, there's no use putting forth any more effort. Self the servant will simply put on a mask of false contentment for the rest of his days and hope no one notices he failed. The frantic executive. You consider your work achievements and bank accounts and self, the boss, is never pleased. Money and approval from higher-ups determines his happiness, so if either of these is lacking, self, the boss, grows even more displeased, irritated with others, and fearful of failure. Self, the servant, then throws himself into his work, trying to appease self, the boss, make more money, and earn the good glances of others, but self, the servant, is never fully satisfied because at the end of the day, he retires to bed no happier than when he woke up. And finally, the concerned parent. Self, the boss, expects perfection in her ability to guide, teach, and nurture the faith of her kids. The standard for self, the boss, is to raise children who reflect positively on all the hard work she put in for so many years. So self the servant cannot understand why she grows increasingly stressed when her children make poor decisions and run into trouble. 
Self, the servant, cries herself to sleep at night, wondering where she went wrong in her parenting. Now suppose at some point you say to yourself, this is no good. I'm living for myself and I'm not happy. I'm being too hard on myself. I need to just lighten up and give myself a break. So that's what you do, but here's the problem. You're still not happy. Because while self the servant is off the hook, self the boss is no longer being served. Living for yourself is an absolute nightmare. When you lay self out as the master, you end up being crushed as the servant. And then when you lighten up as the servant, you end up being shortchanged by the master. You cannot possibly win. And beyond just being miserable, Smith notes that it's actually dangerous to serve an unhappy boss and even more dangerous to serve an uncrowned king. Self is a pretender to the throne and it will not end well for self and its servants when they stand before the real king on judgment day. But there's good news. There's good news. Jesus Christ died and was raised so that you can be free from the bondage of living for yourself and experience the true life and joy that comes only through living for Him. Even though you have broken the law of God, even though you have broken His law, He still loves you. He loves you so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die, taking the punishment of sin that you deserve. And in that death, in Christ's death, He offers you complete forgiveness of your sin and freedom from the power of your sin. And He gives you Jesus. He gives you Jesus as an infinitely better boss. And He frees you to serve Him rather than yourself. And so, if you're here this morning, and you're living for yourself and not for Christ. I urge you in the words of Paul at the end of chapter 5, be reconciled to God through Christ. Today, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Die to yourself. And experience the joy of living for Christ and others. And if you want to hear more about this and have questions about what it means to live for Christ and to be freed from the bondage of self, please talk with someone before you leave. We would be thrilled and happy to have that conversation about you can, how you can have true freedom in Jesus Christ. It is clear from this text that since all Christians have died to themselves with Christ, then our dominating pattern of life as a Christian, our normal, regular life, our MO, must be living for Christ in others rather than living for ourselves. But even though we understand that we're not the planet's main attraction, too often we live as if we think we are. Do you not sense in your heart the relentless temptation to live for yourself? 
I sure do. Every day, every day it's there. I feel it and I sense it. And oftentimes I choose to place my own interests above the interests of Christ in others. So as we struggle with this, as, as the gathered body who's died to ourselves, as we fight this, just want to offer three suggestions as we close that I, that I trust will be helpful as we battle with this day in and day out. The first is to continue to repent. Continue to repent. When you see ways in which you're living for yourself and when others help you to see those ways because so often we're blind to them, but when it comes to our attention that we're living for ourselves, repent. We must repent. Look to the cross and be reminded again that there, with Christ, you died. You died to yourself. And as long as we live, we must over and over again Repent of this sin of self-worship and failure to live for Christ and others. Second, I think the second help or aid in this battle is to be committed to a local church. Be committed to a local church. I think that the most clear and significant place where we see this death to self and living for Christ and others on display, that the place where it's played out tangibly and visibly, is the local church. The God-ordained community that's made up of a bunch of selfish sinners who have died with Christ and are striving together to live for Christ and others. God knew we would need help in this battle. This battle with self, we can't succeed on our own. And so he gave us the church as an essential means of teaching us how to live for Christ. And within the church, he's provided lots of opportunities for us to do just that. And so as we commit then, as we commit as members to live for Christ, we're also committing to live for others as we strive together to love one another and to serve one another. So, so formally identifying with the biblically faithful church is a natural response. And then I would add a necessary response to our death with Christ and his saving work in our lives. On this point, it's a good time for me to just mention that if you would like to learn more about what we as a church understand Scripture to teach about church membership, if, if you want to understand more of what we see Scripture teaching about it and why we think it's important, Next Sunday afternoon, 3.30, I'd encourage you to attend the membership seminar as Pastor Miller will teach more on this specific point. And if you have identified with the local church through membership, how are you relating to your church family? What does your relationship with your church look like? As you evaluate that, Consider this question. I think it's an important question for all of us to consider. What might change, perhaps what should change, with your involvement in the life of your church if you live less for yourself and more for Christ 
and the brothers and sisters you've been called to serve. So, so as we fight with our desire to live for ourselves as a body, first, keep repenting. Second, be committed to the local church. And then finally, focus on the love of Christ. Focus on the love of Christ. This is the motivation. The song we all learned as a kid, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is so basic and simple and so familiar to us. But as we read in Ephesians 3 at the start of our service this morning, Christ's love for us is wide. It's deep. It's infinitely long and high. It's absolutely beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And so we never get past this. We can never move past the good news of Christ crucified and risen. And so we must devote our lives to going deeper and deeper into the old, old story of God's love for us in Christ. And as we do, as we focus there, by God's grace, we'll be motivated to serve Him. His love will control us and we'll live more and more for Christ and less and less for ourselves. At the conclusion of his biography on the life of Jonathan Edwards, George Marsden, I think, captures this well. He says, The highest or most beautiful love is sacrificial love for the undeserving. Those who are given eyes to see that ineffable beauty will be enthralled by it. They will see the beauty of a universe in which unsentimental love triumphs over real evil. They will not be able to view Christ's love dispassionately, but rather will respond to it with their deepest affections. Truly seeing such good, they will have no choice but to love it. In glimpsing such love, they will be drawn away from their preoccupations with the gratifications of their most immediate sensations. They will be drawn from their self-centered universe. Seeing the beauty of the redemptive love of Christ is the true center of reality. They will love God and all that He's created. So what are your motivations for Christian ministry? We've seen from the Apostle Paul that our service to God must be motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. May we be a church whose ministry is motivated by the reality that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and may we be motivated by the love of Christ as those who have died with him to ourselves so that we may live for Christ and live for others. Father, we express to you our humble gratitude for showing us the love you've given us in Christ. This is a grace and we thank you we confess how little we know of it, how little we pursue it and desire to understand it more. 
but thank you for Christ crucified for sin and raised from the dead. Father, help us as individuals, as fathers and wives, as moms and husbands, as children, as individuals in our neighborhood, at our job, as, as a church. Help us to be motivated by the fact that we'll stand before Christ to give an account, as will others. And Father, help us to be motivated by the love you have for us in Christ. Continue, Father, the work of causing us to live less and less for ourselves and more and more for Christ and others. Father, for any of those here this morning who may be living for themselves, even though they don't even know it, Father, remove their deception. Show them the misery of not living for Christ. Show them the reality of the judgment they will face because of their rebellion. And Father, grant to them, I pray, through your grace, grant to them the freedom in Christ to live for you and for other people. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me and take a moment to reflect on the message we've heard this morning.